Um, We are glad that you have chosen to worship with us today. We know sometimes that's risky, and so thank you for being here, whether you're in person or you're curious and you're online live streaming to see what all this is about. Um, I want to talk to you today about Monopoly. Well, maybe just part of Monopoly. Uh, My kids love playing Monopoly. And uh, you move around the game board, of course, you acquire properties, and then you get to charge people rent, right? You're making deals, swapping properties and things and everything. And other than landing on the high-rent district of the Monopoly board, the place you don't want to land is jail, right? Right? You remember these cards? Put that slide up. Remember this? But if you're lucky enough that you draw out of the community chest your get-out-of-jail-free card, and you've landed on that, you hear shouts of joy, woohoo! I'm out of jail. It's a fantastic thing, isn't it? Just remember those good times playing that game. As we've looked in the book of Acts here, we've seen um, in our study that the church is extremely generous, sharing with those in need, helping people. They are gathering, worshiping together, and they continue doing it, even if it's unpopular. They keep telling people about Jesus, and in Verse 16 of chapter 5, and we're going to pick up right in verse 17, but in verse 16 of chapter 5, it tells us that the gospel started spreading out in the towns around Jerusalem, the towns of Judea. It's the first mention of the spread that they said would happen in Acts chapter 1, to go be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is a transition in the book and saying that spread's happening. The gospel's going out. It's gone to the countryside. And... There's some people that don't like that. It brings renewed opposition and lands them in jail. And the question is, do they have a get-out-of-jail-free card? Let's find out. Follow along with me. This is Acts chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 17 to 20, skip a few, and then finish out the chapter. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. That's some kind of get out of jail free card right there. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. So they do. They go stand in the temple courts and they start talking about the new life. The people who arrested them and put them in jail come back to look for them at jail and they're not there. And they're like, what happened? We put them in jail. Where'd they go? And other people are like, hey, we saw them out there in the public spaces talking to people. And they're like, what? So they scurry over there, find them, gather them all up, bring them before the Sanhedrin, that is the ruling religious council, to put them on trial and ask them questions. So we'll pick up the story now in verse 27. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. 
Some time ago, Theudas appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, appeared in the day of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you will bless the reading of your word, which is timeless, it's eternal, it's true. It's relevant today, even as it was thousands of years ago. So we pray that you will help us to understand it and to walk and live in light of it. In your name we pray, amen. In the United States today, opposition to public Christian faith is growing At the same time, the number of those professing um, adherence to and involvement in Christian faith is rapidly declining. In many parts of the country, it is no longer considered a positive thing to be a Christian and be part of a church. Depends which parts of the country you live in, I suppose, but that is true. It it probably, at, at best, is neutral, and in some cases may actually be a negative association. As you know, as I prayed earlier, today is designated as the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. In an article published in Christianity Today last year at this time for this day of prayer, there were some statistics in there about different things showing the the outbreak of persecution around the world and and the seriousness of it and, and what's going on. And so I just thought I'd share with you where the United States is in that and how things have changed. So, um... There's a list of hundreds, nearly 200 countries, right, in the list and everything that is there. And, um, and then there's the list of the largest nations, the 25 largest nations. And of those 25 largest nations, Japan, South Africa, Italy, Brazil, and the United States all had the lowest overall levels of government restrictions and social hostilities. The lowest. So while you may feel like things are changing, and they are changing, we do not live in a country like many others do in which we are heavily persecuted for our faith. And for that, we should rejoice and be grateful. But on the other hand, when you look at those who are heavily persecuted, you see something interesting. For instance, in that same report, in China, the Protestant church has grown from 1.3 million members in 1949 to more than 81 million members today, and the Catholic church from 3 to 12 million. So going from 
in a place where they are persecuted for what they believe, about 4 million believers to nearly 100 million in like 50 years. Where it's not fashionable, and in fact, sometimes arrestable, persecutable to be Christian. Here we're free, and it's in decline. There may be lots of things that should tell us. I don't intend to dive into all that day in in theory and everything, but I do want to ask you this question. Do you think that opposition to faith will stop the mission of God? You think external opposition to faith will stop the mission of God? And I'm going to say, have you read the Bible? Um, And I don't mean cover to cover, word for word, because probably not everybody and very few people have actually done that, but but have you... Are you familiar with it? Have you read the stories? Like, when people are opposed, does that stop God's plan? Okay, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to have many descendants. Yeah, we don't have any kids. No problem. Here's a kid. Moses, you're going to go lead the people out of Egypt. Um, you don't understand. I murdered there. I used to live in the house of the Pharaoh, and I'm not going to be welcomed back. No problem. You're going to go lead millions of people out. Israelites. You're going to go and take this land. Yeah, we don't have a standing army. No problem. You can walk around cities. The walls will fall down. I mean, the story of the Bible, again and again, page after page, is that in God's mission to make his name and his glory known, and his love for his people, that's unstoppable. Jesus, let's get rid of him. We'll kill him. Risen from the dead. It doesn't work. You cannot stop the mission of God. The church, the acts of the early Christians here, they're going about what they're doing, and it is unstoppable. Now, opposition doesn't mean that it's easy, right? It's very tough. And when we face opposition, I think a lot of times we are challenged in our, in our views and in our morals, and we want, may want to change the morals that Jesus taught us to make them more culturally appropriate. Or maybe we want to just kind of hide and shrink back from society and live in fear when it's no longer fashionable? Do we just, do we just be silent and, and hide? Stop trying? Jesus' mission is unstoppable. And God works through people like you and me, through Christians, to carry out that mission. And this is one of the things we see here. They're arrested again, and yet they go forth. And I want to look at just two two kind of angles on this. One is how the opposition tries to stop the mission of Jesus and the apostles and Christians who are carrying it out. And second, how do Christians go about the mission? So those two things. How does opposition try to stop the mission? How do Christians go about carrying out the mission? Okay, so first, how the opposition tries to stop the mission. Yeah, if you have an image, if I can put an image in your mind, I just want you to picture a red light, okay? Red light, stop, stop, stop. That's what opposition says. You can't do that. Stop. Here's your red light. Stop, 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 stop. And that's what they're trying to do. Stop in so many ways. How do we see that? Censorship. They gave strict orders that they were not allowed to speak in that name. They won't even name the name. That name. You know, the one we told you not to speak about. Don't speak about that name. It's not to be mentioned. They're trying to censor them. Right? Jail. They threatened them arrested them. This is the second time they've been arrested, thrown in jail. They've threatened to kill them or talked about killing them. They wanted to put them to death. They're so angry. They want to kill them. That's what they did to Jesus. Let's just do it to them too. Right? And then they flog them. 
That is a beating, a whipping, a scourging. They beat them severely as a reminder that the ruling class has the power. But do they? I mean, that's what they do, right? That's clearly what we saw in the text. Seems like a thousand years, two thousand years ago, and things don't change, right? I mean, that's what happens today in many ways. Censorship. Don't say those things. Hate speech. Whatever we want to call it. Censor things. It's a cancel culture. If you do that, you get canceled. Your show's gone. Your podcast is gone. Your voice, your status, it's out. Mobs may even come around to try to threaten violence, to intimidate. I don't know about killing. I hope not. Some of you have seen such opposition rise. So I've asked a few people, and um, I said, do you see opposition? Do you see things changing? You can think of a few instances. It's not terrible, but yeah, there's some instances where noticing that if you're a Christian, and that's known in your workplace, you're more likely to get passed over for promotions. That's what, what I was told about one workplace. Um, kids, you know this. Because if you play a sport and you miss a game for a religious reason, like going to church, some coaches understand that, and some will bench you for it and say, well, you should be committed to the team more. I remember when our kids were playing sports, and now they're, they're uh, old and out of the house. I guess that makes me old. But I remember when they were playing sports, and this was a huge tension for us because I love sports, and our kids were playing sports. And what were we going to do, and how were we going to try to train them and teach them um, about Christianity and the importance of it, and that sometimes there's a cost to it? So, parents, a question I have for you is, are you willing to train your kids? Because you're training your kids. That's what you do. Are you willing to train them that sometimes there's a cost to being a Christian? Are you willing to let them experience that cost? Or will you teach them just to conform to culture? Whatever it says, that's just what we do. Sports is near and dear to my heart, so that's a difficult one. For us, it was a thing like um, when, when games were on Sundays, that was a hard thing. And we let them play sometimes on Sundays, but we made a priority to be at church. There were times they missed church to go to soccer games. They did. Right or wrong, I don't know. They did. But there were also times that we told them, today, you have to miss your soccer game to go to church. Like, but I can't do that. Why? Because sometimes that's what being Christian is, is not being popular. And you have to count the cost. And we're training you by habit so that you know that this is important. That happens in all kinds of ways, not just with sports, but, right, parents, are you training your kids? Because you are training them. And the question is, how are you training them? And what habits are you training them? How are you shaping them? And kids, like, I get it. It's hard. Like, when you're like, I don't want to go to church again. That preacher is boring. I know. I listen to him every week. Usually twice when I'm preparing it and then when I'm saying it. But there's a cost. Right? And for you to be a follower of Jesus means you don't always get to be popular. It doesn't mean you have to be unpopular. It doesn't mean that. But sometimes 
You may be unfashionable. The other thing we do see in this text about how the opposition tries to stop the mission is, is a voice of wisdom that comes forth. Gamaliel, okay, now this may seem odd. Well, how are they trying to stop it? Like he's speaking for them. That's true. He is speaking for them, but he's doing it in kind of a subversive way. And, and I want you to see this. So Gamaliel is a famous rabbi. In fact, he's the one who, who trained Saul of Tarsus, who when we get to like chapter 9, we'll see becomes Paul, the apostle, after being converted, okay? This is his teacher. Gamaliel speaks up in front of the Sanhedrin and says, hey, look, many movements have started and, and their leaders have been killed off and then the followers scatter and they die out. Nothing comes of it. And he says, if this is of human origins, it's going to die off. Don't worry about it. If it's from God, then what are we going to do to stop it anyways? And so that's a voice of wisdom saying, let's not just overreact and go to the place of killing everybody when we disagree with them. Let's kind of take an approach, wait and see what happens. Maybe we could use some of that wisdom in our culture today too. But the approach is what I want to think about with you for a moment and how it's sort of subversive. Here's what I mean. Gamaliel's advice, and they, the, what they adopt is, let's take the wait-and-see approach. And the wait-and-see approach for them meant this. If it works, then we know it's true. That's, that's his theory. Let's see if it works, then God's probably behind it, and I guess then we better be careful. His theory, his approach is, if it works, we'll know it's true. And I want to suggest to you that's not the right approach to figuring out if you're going to follow Jesus. Jesus works, definitely works in your life. He's relevant, changes life. But the grounding from which you should follow Jesus is because it is actually true. That's why the apostles' response is, okay, um, here's the facts. We are eyewitnesses to the resurrection. It is true, and because it's true, that's why we're willing to do this. It shapes everything for us. But if your approach is um, to operate life um, from truth, uh, that's great. If your approach is to wait and see outcomes and then decide if it's true, outcomes change all the time. Outcomes don't guarantee that it's true. It just guarantees it's effective for a little bit. So don't operate your life based on outcomes and if it works. If it works is important. I'm not saying it's not important. I'm just saying don't make that the foundation. Make the foundation what you operate from Jesus. Because the winds of times change and blow in all kinds of different places and directions and you need a compass that points directly to Jesus. Let's flip the script here and look on the other side of how Jesus' followers go about his mission instead of stopping it. So if I can give you an image, I want you to see a green light now. What they do is they see green lights everywhere. They're like, nope, crash in the intersection, no problem, green light, we're going through it. Like, there isn't anything that's stopping them. They're like, we're going to keep going because that's what God has told us to do. And how do we see this? How do they react? They're obedient. Notice that they're obedient. They obey God over humans. Put verse 29 on the screen for me if you would. This is what Peter and the other apostles who were arrested say. Um, we must obey God rather than human beings. And you're telling us not to do this, but God has told us to do this. He's bigger, higher, more powerful than you. He died for us, rose again for us. We're going to follow him. Okay? So we're going to obey God. So they obey God. Jesus is the truth and the life. He's the one who rose from the dead. And what does that mean? When God opens doors, they walk through them. They're in jail. An angel comes, opens the door, and they're like, I guess we're going that way. 
when God opens doors for you, do you walk through them? They go to tell the people about new life because that's what they're instructed to do. And they do that. They go out right back into the courts where they got arrested. Maybe they're going to get arrested again, but they go anyways and start telling them. Not only are they obedient, but secondly, they are focused. They are focused on the message. And this I want us to look at a little bit here. They're focused on the message, which is not primarily about ethics and morality. In fact, if you read it, they don't talk about that at all. It's not because it's not important. It's just not their first approach. Look look with me um, at verses 30 and 31. Let's put those on the screen. So here's Peter, and he says, uh, yeah, we're going to obey God, not you, because the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed, by the way, hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgiveness and forgive their sins. Peter and the apostles approach. Their focus of the message is about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Morality does matter. They talk about that. It's written all through the Bible. It's written in the, in the letters, the epistles. But it's always preceded by the good news of Jesus. That comes first. The cross and the empty tomb are always first because that's the power for change and the motivation of why we would ever want to follow Jesus in the first place. And so that's what they do. They talk about historical facts. We're eyewitnesses of this. We saw him die. We've seen him alive after his death. He's risen. We can tell you that. But not only do they talk about the message in terms of historical facts, they talk about it from the perspective of God's heart. Did you see that? Because what was it for? Will you put those two verses back on the screen again, verse 30 and 31? Notice what it says right at the bottom, right? Here's the facts. God raised Jesus from the dead. You killed him. Fact. Exalted him to his own right hand. Why? That. That he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. And so they present historical facts and the heart of God because God desires that people would repent and know the forgiveness that he offers. He desires to be reconciled, to shower his love on people, to show them mercy. That's the heart of God for sufferers and sinners. It's the book that most of you are reading in your small groups this fall, Gentle and Lowly. That's what they start with. That's the message. That's what they're focused on. So they're obedient and they're focused, and thirdly, they're persistent. They never stop even when things get difficult. You can put verse 42 on the screen for me. I'll show this verse to you. Probably the last verse I'll show you here. Um, it says, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped. Again, Gamaliel said, if it's from God, you won't be able to stop it. And the apostles are saying, we're not stopping. It's an unstoppable mission. Not only is it unstoppable and they, they view it that way, they've been put in jail twice, flogged once, and they're still like, we're going to keep doing it. I mean, can you imagine that for, I mean, if you went to jail twice, got whipped, got scars all over your body, like, yeah, this is, this is awesome, I'm going to keep doing this. What? Because they saw Jesus walk out of the tomb. They didn't see him come out of the tomb. They saw him after he was out of the tomb, walking around. Nail holes in his body. That's a game changer. It's a game changer. Also, verse 42, did you notice this? Where do they go? 
they do change their strategy a little bit. Notice where it says they did. In the temple courts, that's where they got arrested. That's where they were instructed to go back to. That is the place. That's the marketplace. It's the business. It's where things happen. It's where the religious stuff happens. It's where the political people are. It's where everything happens. It's the center, the city, the city center, if you will, okay? But, and then they go to home, house to house. So they go in big public spaces and in private spaces, house to house. But they go, and they keep going with the good news of Jesus. You may think, they may be asking, what if I go back to jail? I don't know, the door got open once. Maybe that'll happen again. Maybe not. They go back to jail multiple times. And I would suggest to you that what we learn is if they go back to jail, they're like, then that's the place God wants us to do ministry. That's what they do in chapter 16. What's interesting is I got two emails this week, um, two updates from people who are missionaries uh, about jail. One here in Richmond and um, Fred Sloan who works in the jails and teaches Bible and people are becoming Christians and another Randy Neighbors who uh, is doing it. And Randy, Randy wrote this. He said, this morning, which was earlier this week, I was with inmates in the jail as they studied how to preach. A couple of the men came up to me and introduced themselves as members of PCA churches. They have joined these churches since being in prison, committing their lives to Christ since being sentenced, and committed themselves to a local body of believers. The Lord is reaping a harvest in prison because the mission is unstoppable. There's people everywhere that God has who will believe. Last thing that I need to tell you about here is, is that they're joyful, right? This is the last response we see, too. They're joyful. They rejoice. They leave rejoicing. That they were flogged. Did you, did you hear that? You just, you just got the you-know-what beat out of you, and you're leaving like, yes! That was awesome. Like, what? Why? Why was it awesome? And it says, because we were counted worthy to be associated with the name of Jesus. And for that, we will rejoice. Now, I want you to notice, Christians, Christians have a problem. Sometimes they rejoice for being jerks. That's not what they did. Christians are not called to be jerks in society, right? That's not what we rejoice about. Man, I'm rejoicing because they opposed me and I was a jerk back to them. Woo, I won. That's, That's not what's being said here. They're rejoicing because they were identified with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And for that, they will gladly take the suffering. Let me give you a couple takeaways, and we'll wrap up here, okay? So I'm going to put these on the screen. Takeaways. Look, having new life in Jesus means you also live a new way of life, and sometimes it's not popular. So here's three, three uh, takeaway questions for you. The cost. Ask yourself this question. When I face opposition for my faith, will I obey God and follow Jesus even if it's costly? Two, your compass. Am I guided by the cross and the empty tomb? Is that your compass? That was the message they focused on. Three, rejoice. When I face opposition, I will ask, was I a jerk? Then I need to apologize. Was I simply associated with Jesus? Then I'll rejoice. I'm telling you, the mission's unstoppable. I got another communication this week from missionaries, and I've taken, it said not to share it, so I'm not giving you any names and kind of changed it up a little, but I want to tell you about it. Um, 
So there's stories of missionaries all the time who face threats of violence and how God delivers them in miraculous ways. This was a woman who put her faith in Jesus because of some work that missionaries were doing and she had met them and come alongside them. When she did so, it cost her dearly. She was part of another major religious group. Her father was a prominent religious leader in that religion and he was so angered by her conversion that he immediately arranged for her to marry a man who would put an end to her faith. And upon hearing this, the missionaries uncharacteristically decided to pray that this woman's father might be struck down by God and that, her, that this future would be thwarted. This was the prayer. Lord, give this man a physical ailment to get his attention and let us pray for his healing to demonstrate your power. He was headed out of town, the missionary was, and left, and on his way traveling, he told his missionary teammate, called and told the missionary teammate what he had prayed and to be watchful. That afternoon, the woman who had been converted and was supposed to get married off to this other man comes to the missionaries and asks for prayer. And they say, why? Why do you need prayer? And she says, well, my father has fallen ill, and he's in so much pain, such severe pain, that he is willing to ask Jesus for help. Will you come pray for him? And they said, we will. And they go and they pray for him, and he's healed. So he goes to the missionary church and offers thanks to Jesus for being healed, but does not convert. Still is not converted. But said, okay, but I'll thank Jesus for that. And no longer is requiring his daughter to marry this other man. People, God is alive. Jesus walked out of the tomb. He's given us a mission. It's unstoppable. Will you do your part in it? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will help us to know this mission and to um, rejoice in it, that we will all do our parts. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.